Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast. Episode 266. What I didn't expect is to find out that this is also the story of two undercover cops who get too deep into it. At some point, they realize these are human beings that they're working with. These aren't the faceless enemy, whoever they are. And they want out at some point. I'd like to explain why we did it, the rationale behind it. I would, I would like to find out what the fallout was on that, because I don't know any of that. I can't apologize for any of that if I don't know Knowing what I know now, I think the reveal would have been done differently. I fear that he believes we ruined part of his life. Because keep in mind, I mean, my God, right? You, 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 you've been going for years, 108 hours. You're responsible for half a million dollars, and it comes out that you've been conned. Those were the voices of my dear friend Brian Brushwood and two men he recently interviewed for a new podcast series about an incredible hoax, an incredible con job, an incredible publicity stunt meant to improve scientific rigor and methodology. Uh, we have one quest, and it, it is to figure out history's greatest deceptions. We started season one with uh, how the Allies fooled Hitler. We did season two all about game shows and, and how they were the next evolution of a midway carnival. And uh, boy, season three is something something special. In this episode, we will sit down with Brian to discuss how he put this most recent season together. And we'll get to all that in a moment. But first, I want to tell you a few things about this strange episode in American history. These men he interviewed, Steve Shaw, who would later become known as Banachek, and Mike Edwards, they have a lot of feelings about what happened after they conned the United States government. And this new season is all about how in the 1970s, as teenage boys, as teenage magicians, those two men worked their way into a secret psychic soldier program conducted at a hidden United States laboratory. Yes, the sort of thing Stranger Things was based on. The United States really did look into that sort of thing for a while there. And Edwards and Shaw used their magician know-how 
their prowess at close-up magic and sleight of hand and stagecraft, they used those skills to con scientists into believing that they were indeed both powerful psychics. And then they held a press conference about it, revealing what they had done, and things got messy. So why would they do this? Why would two teenagers spend weeks breaking into rooms, slowly manipulating objects while scientists weren't looking, spitting on camera lenses, carefully blowing air underneath jars, and so much more? Well, even though they were teenagers, like most magicians, they were also well aware that all human beings are remarkably susceptible to belief in the paranormal. Things like psychic powers and telepathy and remote viewing and the ability to predict the future and read minds. And even though there's no evidence that any of this is possible, with a little training, it can become remarkably easy to fool people into assuming they've witnessed something mysterious that can't be explained by science. And in the late 1970s, it was a boom time for belief in the paranormal. Why the 1970s? Well, lots of reasons, but we could start with how psychology itself became a separate discipline in science around the end of the 1800s. Yeah, we have to go all the way back there. In fact, a little bit farther back, because right before then, peaking somewhere around the 1850s, seances had become very, very popular. A seance is a party, usually at a big dinner table where someone with incredible stagecraft and charm would convince people that they, the medium conducting the seance, could talk to the partygoer's dead relatives, or could talk with spirits haunting the house where they were having this party, or just the spirit realm in general. It was all, of course, not real. It was a performance, often with props prepared ahead of time, like tables that would move and objects that would dance around. But damn if this wasn't really in for a while. Mark Twain attended a seance, Queen Victoria. Even Abraham Lincoln attended one of these in the White House, where a grieving Mary Todd Lincoln attempted to contact one of their children who had passed away. Now, why were these popular? They were part of the spiritualism movement. In the 1800s, roughly 10 million people in the United States identified as a spiritualist, including the physicist Mary Curie, and one of the founders of psychology, William James. It was a time of hundreds of books on the topic, a giant marketplace of periodicals and lectures and seances. So how did spiritualism take over the world for a while there? Well, one of the main catalysts was the proselytizing of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He was the creator of Sherlock Holmes, and he, ironically, was very unskeptical about all this, to the point that he stopped writing Holmes novels and devoted his later life, up through about 1930, to writing books about spiritualism, 13 in all. Several articles and books on this topic suggest that this all really began, and this influenced Doyle and others, in 1848, when two sisters, Margarita Fox, who was 14, and Catherine Fox, who was 11, 
claimed they could communicate with a ghost named Mr. Splitfoot, who was haunting their home in Hydesville, New York. Rumors spread, newspapers wrote articles, and thanks to the weird and wonderful unfolding of complex systems, they went viral, and eventually hundreds of people would come to witness them supposedly speak with the dead. And that kicked off a wave of seances across the country. Ideas like this go viral when cultures become uniquely susceptible to the need for such a thing, to what it will assuage and salve and solve, when there's a widespread motivation to latch onto them. And according to Emily Midorikawa in her book, Out of the Shadows, what allowed this to go viral in this particular era was the shrinking size of the family. People were having far fewer children in the 19th century as compared to previous centuries, and that made the loss of a child a more impactful, more painful experience than it had been in eras before. The idea that one could speak with a dead child through a medium, that you could gain peace through a glimpse of their ongoing existence in the realm of ghosts, had offered comfort in a time when that comfort was something people of means were newly willing to pay for. And according to the New Yorker magazine, this newfound marketplace of mediums got a huge boost from the aftermath of both the American Civil War and World War I, when these same seances now offered an opportunity to not only speak with deceased children, but with family members who had died on the battlefield. And then came the rise of electricity and photography, the telegraph, the radio. It was all weird and new and mysterious. It suggested communication through an invisible ether. And all of this combined into a culture-wide anxiety that just kept growing as science moved out of textbooks and laboratories and into daily life. As psychology struggled to be seen as a real science here at the turn of the century, it stumbled quite a few times. And I guess we could look at this as being a stumble point or maybe the opposite of that, because in the beginning, one of the first things psychologists tested were the claims of mediums, clairvoyants, psychics, hypnotists, and so on. Mesmerism, animal magnetism, all these pseudoscientific attempts to assuage the anxiety brought about by this scientific change became the focus of scientific investigation. And that, combined with the efforts of skeptics like Houdini, would in some circles push spiritualism into the fringes, while in other circles, this would ironically legitimize it. So for a long while, it was still there, in the background of American life, as film and television began a sort of second wave of popularization through spooky movies and TV shows. Then came World War II, the rocket age, the UFO paranoia of the 1950s, the Cold War freakout over nuclear annihilation, and finally, a huge counterculture movement that embraced the use of psychedelics. So change was constant, and anxiety about what the hell is really going on was everywhere. And so by the 1970s, a whole range of paranormal concepts had once again risen in popularity from remote viewing and contact with parallel dimensions to 
ancient aliens and alien abduction and Bigfoot and the healing power of crystals, it all led to an interest in the possibility of psychic phenomena. And it came back in a really big way. And in that space, people who made money claiming to be psychics found themselves in another boom time. And all through this time, the domain of parapsychology was conducting experiments into these claims. Yes, parapsychology. And so in the 1970s, you had the creation of the Academy of Parapsychology and Medicine, the Institute of Parascience, the Academy of Religion and Psychical Research, the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Laboratory, and a parapsychological division at the Stanford Research Institute. Now, make no mistake, all of this was still considered fringe by many scientists, and by the 1980s, it all began to crumble and return to being considered pseudoscience. That's the whole premise of the movie Ghostbusters. But for a solid decade and some change, this was everywhere, especially in popular media. And a few celebrity psychics made out like bandits during this period of time. Most notably, a man claiming to have psychic powers who went by the name of Yuri Geller. Which brings us all the way back to the story of Project Alpha. And that's where this really begins. Oh, and Project Alpha, that's what they called this hoax conducted by two teenagers and a world-famous magician aimed at improving scientific rigor. So let's play a few excerpts from Season 3 of The World's Greatest Con, in which Brian Brushwood will tell us a few things about how all this came to be. I'll skip around a little bit, and then after that there will be a commercial break, and then after that we will sit down with Brian and just talk about the whole thing and his experience putting it together. Okay, here's some excerpts. The trustees of Stanford University founded what would become the Stanford Research Institute in the 1920s. It gave us some of the first research on air pollution and the ozone layer. In the 1950s, they were hired by Walt and Roy Disney to investigate the feasibility of a theme park in Southern California. They helped movies develop color film, pioneering the process behind Technicolor. But by the 1970s, that social contagion had them too. They wanted to uncover the truth behind what they called parapsychology, and they knew just who they wanted to see. Yuri Geller. During these series of experiments, they tested Geller and his ability to replicate drawings that were created in another room to prove his skills in remote viewing. They determined those experiments to be a success, warranting further study. The world had already seen all it needed to. Yuri Geller, charismatic, symmetrical, nice jawline, handsome figure, now with validated powers? Yuri became an instant phenomenon. I've been reading a lot of research on him uh, from the Stanford Research Institute and from the uh, science section of the New York Times. A lot of publicity on this gentleman whose name is Uri, U-R-I, Uri Geller. That's Yuri making his debut on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It's hard to understand what this meant from our point of view, living in a fractured world of subcultures on the internet. But at this time, The Tonight Show is Mount Olympus. Appointment viewing, a ground where only gods tread. Movie stars, athletes, politicians, the ones where you only need to say their first name because your brain has already auto-completed the rest. But it's also a place where mortals can become gods. Yuri is the right man at the right place at the right time. The stars were aligned. 
he could not fail. But he did fail. He failed spectacularly. And that was because one man, who had become Geller's greatest adversary, believed something else about Geller. He believed that Geller was only doing the same magic tricks that illusionists had pioneered for hundreds, if not thousands of years. He believed Geller was only taking advantage of that social contagion, that desire to believe. He believed he knew how to expose him. And that's exactly what James Randi did. So we've talked about this moment before. James Randi, who would go on to win a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant for his work, found the James Randi Educational Foundation, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, and the Amazing Meeting Conference, a man who offered a $1 million prize for anyone who could demonstrate psychic or paranormal powers under scientific scrutiny, which no one ever has won. This man would go on to The Tonight Show and then, in a cringeworthy takedown of Yuri Geller, demonstrate at least to the satisfaction of many people, that Geller appeared to be a fraud right there in front of Johnny Carson. Now, that then led to years of lawsuits for defamation and the rise of the skeptic community in the United States, and Geller would go on to claim that his powers had been dampened by the bad vibes in the studio, and anyone who writes about Geller, even today, is very careful to use the kind of language that avoids these kinds of lawsuits. But it became a real pop culture moment. And Randy would go back on The Tonight Show and demonstrate things like how psychic surgery was just an old-fashioned trick that magicians knew how to do, and it was dangerous because it kept people from getting the help they needed for conditions that psychic surgery would not help. So this moment reached all sorts of people all over the place, all over the world, including two budding magicians. And that's where the season that we're talking about here in this episode really kicks in. Here's some excerpts from how this moment led to the beginnings of Project Alpha. I never really felt like I was part of a group. And even today, I have a very hard time feeling like I belong with any particular group. Banachek becomes very, very good at tricking people. The class prankster, using his psychic powers, he stops a clock at school. He makes the school bell ring early. He's a hero. And he begins to earn a reputation as he becomes more popular. He gets another job at a racetrack. One time there was a policeman, one of the local policemen in town, and I was bending keys a lot back then. And he said, hey, bend one of my keys. I said, well, give me a key that you don't need. Well, he didn't think I could do it. So he gave me his patrol key. And sure enough, I bent it, and he had to call his buddies to come bring another key because he couldn't drive his patrol car. Really overconfident, I would say. So I wrote Randy a letter, and I said, hey, if you ever need a kid to fool scientists, I'd be happy to do that. Um, Never expecting I was ever going to hear back from him. In the show, we learn much more about Steve Shaw's backstory, the difficult childhood of a boy raised in South Africa and Australia, who would later call himself Banachek. That's his stage name as a mentalist and magician today. And then we move on to the backstory of Mike Edwards, who lived a much different life. His childhood was more idyllic and sheltered. He was raised in Iowa, and he also fell into the world of magic, but through different means. Choir. I was just kind of really cutting my teeth at the time, but I started kicking off 
that performance. So I was going on stage and I was doing just a couple of, of quick magic effects, uh, linking rings and some other visual magic like that as the, as the choir, the show choir, would actually come on stage and get ready to perform. And then I'd slip away, music would start. It's at this time, both boys, each from radically different backgrounds, they read the same book. The Magic of Yuri Geller by James the Amazing Randy. And they both learn that James Randy is interested in cleaning up the world of parapsychology, which eventually leads to both teenagers contacting Randy with the same proposition. It's Mike who takes the first action. Fall of 1979, a friend of mine who knew about my, you know, my uh, uh, psychic abilities, but also knew that it was fake, came back from the University of Northern Iowa. And Connie says to me one weekend, my uh, uh, introductory class to psychology, uh, that professor says that he's actually met Uri Geller and says he's legitimate and that he's truly a psychic. I said, Connie, you know better than that. Tell your professor that you know somebody that has the same abilities as Uri Geller and ask if he'd like me to come speak to the class. She said, are you serious? I said, yeah, but don't say anything about me being a magician or anything else. She says, what are you thinking about doing? I said, I think I'm going to go there, and it's a 90-minute class, about 200 students. If I get this invite, I'm going to convince them that I'm really psychic, and then I'm going to show them how I fooled them so that they're going to be smarter going on with this. She says, okay, I'll do that. Next weekend, she comes back home. She's like, Mike, he's going to be reaching out to you. He wants you to come lecture at the class. This would be great. He's very excited for it. And that was it until I was actually uh, contacted by Professor David Whitsett. Plan is simple. Go to the professor's class, show him exactly what he wants, a legit psychic. He's so excited about the plan, he calls his hero James Randi. He had no idea who I was. I did a lot of research to figure out where he lived, because it's in the front of his book where it says, you know, he signed it, Rumson, New Jersey. He picks up the phone. Hello? Uh, James Randi, please. Speaking. (laughs) There's a little vapor lock on my side because you're talking to your hero now. You're not expecting him to pick up the phone. Um, So I explained to him what I was going to do. You know, is there anything that he could give me any advice or anything on this on? No, no, I think that'd be great. And we'd like you to write up an article for that. And I think that would, you know, we'd be very interested in it. Okay, that's great. Preparing for the big moment. Mike starts building a character. He doesn't want to appear ignorant about the latest news in parapsychology. So he goes to the parapsychology paper of record, the National Enquirer. And it's there he sees it. An article talking about a laboratory that was created in Washington University in St. Louis, being headed up by a guy named uh, Professor Peter Phillips, And Phillips 
had gotten a half a million dollars from uh, the McDonald Foundation, James McDonald from McDonnell Douglas Aircraft Corporation. The McDonnell Douglas Delta has launched more commercial payloads than any other rocket. Our TimeNet system speeds error-free data anywhere in the world. This is America's biggest tank. Our C-17 will land it where no other transport can. We're giving America its money's worth in aviation, space, and information systems. We're McDonnell Douglas. Specifically wanted this to go to Washington University to study psychics. And they were looking for psychic metal-bending children. I call Randy up almost immediately. Randy, it's Mike Edwards again. Remember, I was going to do this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, uh, change of plans. I said, have you heard about this? And I'm telling him about the story. No, I have not heard about that. So the plan with the professor changes. Maybe Mike can cast his line for a bigger fish. Instead of busting himself for the benefit of one professor and a bunch of college kids, maybe he could apply to be a part of a big study like Geller did at Stanford. Let's skip ahead just a second, because this part is great. Finally, the big day arrives. Uh, the professor at one point hands me a spoon out of his pocket, and it was already bent, and I ju- was able just to grab it in a way that it didn't. nobody could see it. And then as I turned around, I just let it droop, and people were just like, oh my God, as soon as he touched it, it just wilted. I brought people up from the class, and I had uh, I bent a couple of car keys in their hands. People write things on, on index cards, and we put them in envelopes and light them on fire, and I could tell them what the images were. In a moment of serendipity, what Mike doesn't know is that the first object he manipulated with his mind belonged to the sports editor at the school newspaper. That reporter writes a breathless account of Mike's supernatural talents. It was a big success. Now, I know it was a big success because the professor was more than happy to write a letter to me. So I was able to send that copy of the document and that letter off to the guys at the Mac Lab. Armed with a legitimate academic bona fide... Even though gained by deception, he applies to the Mac Lab. He gets accepted and immediately calls Randy, letting his hero know that he was following in his footsteps. On the other side of the U.S., Steve also wrote to Randy. And because he lives so much closer, Steve got an invitation to visit in person. And he lived in Rumson, New Jersey, right? So he comes, he picks me up at the bus station, the Greyhound station. We uh, head on over to his house, and it was a true magician's house. I mean, the door opened from the wrong way. It looked like there were hinges there, but it opened it off in the opposite direction. And when you rang the doorbell, there was a big chime and a loud voice, and it was uh, the shadow nose, the Walter Gibson thing from back in the day, right? You walk in, there's a clock that's running backwards. He's got huge macaws right there. He's got doves. He's got cats. He's got um, a big, huge bookcase that opens up, you know, from one side. And there's a hidden big room in there. And it was just, it was exactly what you would expect a magician. So that's how Steve Shaw and Mike Edwards learned the United States was looking for American psychics. And with the help of James Randi, they hatch a plan to show how the research 
wasn't scientific because instead of starting with a hypothesis, then developing a null hypothesis, then working to disprove your assumptions, to disconfirm your hunches and reach conclusions based on evidence, this psychic research in this lab was being conducted out of a desire to confirm suspicions, to confirm beliefs, to confirm wishful thinking, to confirm a hypothesis. And they wanted to out just how terrible this research design was and thanks to how sloppy and forgiving the whole endeavor had become, how easy it would be to manipulate people when the proper controls are not established. And they started right away, right after being picked up at the airport, as soon as the scientists weren't looking their direction. I look in the back seat and I see there's a briefcase back there. I bring the briefcase below the dash to the front seat. I look and it's locked. I'm going, well, if it's locked, that means they don't want you to get in there. It must be something they don't want us to see. Easy to open a briefcase, as you know. So I, I get the briefcase open. I look inside and there's all this cutlery in there, all this silverware, right? I go, oh, this must be the stuff that they're going to be using, you know, in the lab. What are you doing? He says, I just, he twists it up and... It, kind of making a mess out of this thing. I open the glove compartment. And there's some metal objects in there. I start bending those up. I close it. It was at the point when I started reaching over for the keys that Mike said, I think you've done enough damage. As Brian mentioned in the beginning of this episode, eventually they do get in too deep thanks to hijinks like this. And after this break, we will sit down with Brian Brushwood to discuss the rest of the story of Project Alpha, how he put the latest season of the world's greatest con together, the major takeaways, and a whole lot more. All that after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire, 
and you will get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with the therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number, 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, You can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing. Absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. 
Brian Brushwood is a lot of things, a super successful touring stage magician who's appeared on The Tonight Show, The Roseanne Show, Anderson Cooper 360, CNN, Food Network's Unwrapped, Steve Harvey's Big Time Challenge, and on his own show on National Geographic called Hacking the System. He's also an author, a TV host, a television show creator and producer, a YouTuber, and so on. These days, he runs this media empire, which includes The Modern Rogue, Scam Nation, Night Attack, Weird Things, Cord Killers, and The World's Greatest Con. The first season was all about how the British in World War II pulled off Operation Mincemeat, which required creating an entire fictional human being with all the records to match, and then they used that to convince the Nazis that it was the identity of a corpse that had washed ashore on the coast of Spain, and that all misled Hitler into believing an invasion of Greece was imminent, and it it worked. Amazingly, it worked. In the second season, he dove into the world of con artists who hacked the systems of various television shows, game shows, with special interest in the history of a quiz show scandal and how all of that related to stage hypnotism. And in the third season, it's all about Project Alpha, which we've been discussing this whole show so far. All right, let's sit down with Brian Brushwood and talk about all of these things. I mean, uh, look, uh, uh, I'm, I'm fond of pointing out that magicians like to think they're important, but honestly, I would liken what we do to being folk scientists. Like, for example, all of, uh, I think we've talked about this before, maybe, uh, but think of all the farmers that came before uh, anyone figured out genetics and Punnett squares and all that stuff. Uh, they just had an intuitive understanding of, well, seems like you should plant around this time and so on. I think I think that's what magicians have contributed to an emerging field of neuroscience now. Yeah, and that's very uh, relevant to this particular season because and I've mentioned it on my show before. I uh, had a uh, uh, Phil Plate on recently. Uh, we talked a bit about James Randi's uh, legacy as doing that thing that Houdini would do, which was like, I am very familiar with these things that we do as an art form, uh, and I am upfront with my audience that this is entertainment. When I see someone doing that and pretending to actually have powers, and then they go so far as to swindle people out of their money and make them feel feelings that are going to end up being bad. That makes me feel upset, and I would like to expose those charlatans, and uh, this goes right into what we're talking about in this particular season. Here's what I love about this. Their previous seasons would talk about these historical things, and some of these people are just gone. We can't talk to them anymore. This one was different because this con, you were able to spend time with the artists themselves. What was that like? And I'll, I'll, I'll introduce them so that you can take that from there. We're talking about Steve Shaw, who now goes as Banachek. And Mike Edwards, James Randi has passed. Those are your three principal characters. How did you even like get a hold of these people to say, please be on my show. It's going to be about this crazy thing you did back in the 70s slash 80s. This is one of the benefits of spending 20 years touring, performing at colleges is uh, Banachek uh, was, was one of my peers. Uh, he's a little bit older than me, but as I came into the market in my late 20s and toured all over the United States doing colleges. So too was he. And I watched him as he took on increasing roles at the James Randi Educational Foundation and uh, watched him at uh, the amazing meeting perform one of the million dollar challenges. And uh, we've been friendly for 20 years. And there was this moment that uh, we were trying to figure out, okay, what do we want to do? This is me and Justin, my uh, co-creator. Uh, what do we want to do for season three? And I just reached out to uh, to Banachek and said, hey, we would love to tell the story of Project Alpha. 
And immediately he said, yes, of course, but it's not me that you need to convince. It's Mike. And I was like, uh, tell me about Mike. And he said, well, you know, I continue to tour and do my show in the spotlight, but Mike kept all of the receipts and this story is very precious to him. So you're going to have to win him over. And so we just reached out and that was the big question mark is whether or not Mike was willing to trust us. And luckily we had two seasons beforehand so that we could at least point him to the way we tell stories. And we had one mandate from the very beginning, which is as best we could tell the only version of the project alpha story that anybody knows is the sanitized version that James Randi told mm -hmm. uh, nobody had ever heard from the kids who were boots on the ground actually doing it. And that that was the one one thing that we wanted to do. Let's, let's set the stage. Okay, this is, uh, we're in the 1970s. I inherited a lot of my dad's uh, books that he was picking up at the time. And whoa, there was a lot of size stuff. There was, uh, my dad had a copy of The Chariots of the Gods. And uh, there was an enormous amount of weird new agey i think psychics are real and uh there's all those shows uh there was the in the, search uh, of in search of and authesy clark's mysterious world predecessors to unsolved mysteries that were so spooky and wacky and and scary as shit and the the this crystal skull would emerge for Odyssey yeah. Clark's. In, in search of uh, you know nimoy it just walks around and is like who built the pyramids could have been aliens. Let's talk about it. Like, 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 so it was such a thing. What was going on with the seventies? You talk about this, you have an episode about setting the stage that like was a different time. But, and and that, that was a difficult narrative decision for us to make is, is we felt like if we just told the story of project alpha without context, then most people who were born after 1990 or so uh, would would find it unbelievable that the government was actually paying money to develop psychic assassins, that uh, that anything was possible. But in the 1970s, there beneath the Cold War was also kind of a a soft propaganda war. And one of the things that emerged in the 1970s, uh, was the idea that uh, it, 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 behind the Iron Curtain, Russia was pretty much claiming that they had psychic soldiers, which in the escalating Cold War battle meant that the United States needed to have equivalents. Uh, and uh, so we spend a full one hour just explaining how bizarre the 1970s were and uh, what strange, risky things. Here's one of the most amazing parts of Project Alpha to me is Project Alpha, I believe, was revealed in 1982. 1983, you get Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters opens with a scene in which Dr. Peter, Peter Venkman is a clown who's electrocuting somebody so he can hit on a grad student uh, for psychic research. So in one year, you go from psychic assassins being the top priority to suddenly being a punchline in a summer blockbuster. Mm -hmm. That's extraordinary to me. And almost certainly you can attribute all of that to Project Alpha. To, to secondarily set the stage, not everyone will have heard this story, but it was very recently I discussed Yuri Geller as well. This thing happens on The Tonight Show and 
I, did James Randi write his book before or after the, that, that event? It was after. Uh, the Magic of Uri Geller was a bestseller that James Randi wrote, and he tells the story of how he busted Uri Geller live on The Tonight Show. Uh, uh, of course, Johnny Carson uh, is a magician, was very sympathetic to, like, hey, if this guy's a faker, let's, let's out him. Let me set this up differently. So Uri Geller, at this time period, he is this very well-known a proclaimed psychic and you know he's doing spoon bending and 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 figuring out where stuff is located under under objects but oddly enough uh in this weird period of time in american history people were eating this up and like i they i believe he is a psychic so much so that he did something with the stanford research institute where they were like i, I believe this man's a psychic i believe he can bend spoons which clearly means he can help us fight the russians in their psychic warfare campaign but James Randi is like, look, we got to destroy this guy. And he goes, we go, we have the Tonight Show uh, uh, moment, which is one of the cringiest things you'll ever watch. And uh, depending on where you're coming from, you'll you'll cackle and laugh, or you'll just like turn into the get in the fetal position because you wish it would end. Well, and that's one of the things that was most surprising is because when you see the clip, you think, well, that's it. Uh, close close the books. It's done. It's over. He got busted. That's the end. And in fact. Uh, Yuri Geller appears to have think the exact same thing. He, at that moment, the, there's some quote that that we give that he thought his whole career was over. But it turns out that once you're on the Tonight Show, nobody remembers whether you did or didn't do the thing. They do remember that you were on the Tonight Show as this uh, as a psychic, and so he goes on to have a fine career. And so uh, for for the skeptics out there. This is a very vexing and frustrating moment because they got him. They got him dead to rights, or appears to be. Uh, by the way, uh, this is the part that lawyers tell me I'm supposed to say in my opinion. So just in my opinion, <laughs> all of this. Okay. Uh, and and instead, uh, <laughs> so but meanwhile, you have government financed things or, or uh, the the McDonald Corporation. Uh, uh, James McDonald uh, gives. It it ends up being like four million dollars. Oh, really? Wow. Today, money. Yeah, yeah. Here's what I love about the Tonight Show thing. Uh, just just because it is amazing and it happens and it feels like wow, we debunked this guy, and well, that's the end of that. No more psychics on TV. There won't be any more psychics in in magazines. That's done. America has now seen that this is the trick. James Randi goes on his path. He writes this book and also gets goes back on the Tonight Show and shows psychic surgery and all these other things. But Yuri Geller. I, I, he pulls this thing that people in this domain can pull, which is I couldn't do my thing because there were bad vibes. Like because of all the skepticism in the room, uh, my psychic powers got diminished. They dimmed for a moment. So that's how what happened. And, and that's not just how he gets out of it. This is what is used later in the story to explain all sorts of stuff. And then the thing, it kills me. The America keeps going. The government keeps going, saying, "Well, they, 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 and McDonald is this super rich dude with a company that makes you know weapons for the government. He's the chairman of uh, the McDonald Douglas Corporation. He believes in psychic stuff, so he's like, I want to start up a psy lab of all my own. We'll get the research to the government, and he does with a bazillion dollars. What's fascinating to me is the impact that." The idea that bad vibes could ruin a scientific experiment causes a legitimate university 
to soften the rigors of double-blind testing. And we know going all the way back to a, 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 a Chevrolet, uh with the importance of double-blind double testing. And we have throughout all of uh, Project Alpha, you have James Randi actively writing saying, whatever you do, don't allow the subjects to alter the test protocols and don't allow them to claim bad vibes. But that begins with uh, the James... Uh, with the Yuri Geller thing. So, so I love this moment in the story. So you have these two teenagers who have pretty different reasons for getting into magic, but they both read this book as a lot of p- people who are into it at the time do. And they, they end up connecting with James Randi and they end up forming an, a real conspiracy to do a weird thing. How did they both get in touch with James Randi. How did this even, how did this go from, I read his book to, Oh, I have an idea for something we could pull. That was one of the most delightful parts of uncovering this story is finding out that, uh, Steve Shaw, now Banachek, uh, came to this, uh, through skepticism. He, he was somebody who had a very terrible, awful childhood, uh, was abandoned by so many people. If, if we were making a movie of it, it begins with essentially Banachek praying at the altar of a radio station, listening to the devil, uh, Yuri Geller, in my opinion. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, meanwhile, you have the magician, you have Mike Edwards, who's raised in this idyllic, beautiful Iowa suburb, who uh, has never met a challenge he can't face and is a literal choir boy. And both of them read the book, The Magic of Uri Geller. Both of them get connected with James Randi. Both of them independently find out about the uh, the, the Mac Lab at, uh, at Washington University. And uh, both of them apply. But there's no way that this story happens without James Randi, Steve Shaw, and Mike Edwards. It requires all three of them. Unfortunately... What we discovered as we go through the story is that the version almost everybody has heard of it is only through the megaphone of James Randi and not the voice of the kids who actually did the tasks. So it's it's hard to believe, but this is you know pre-internet uh, times, and they just, if I remember correctly, they just send him a letter. They're like, "Hey, I like your book, and and I would like to to pull pull one of these things." One of them had a psychology professor who believed Yuri Geller was a psychic and was like, I'm going to, uh, I, I, I'm going to do some magic tricks to, to show this guy what's up. And I'm basically going to pull the, the Randy thing for him. Yeah. Th- uh, that that's Mike Edwards. Uh, Mike Edwards performed at his local college and originally he was going to reveal himself, but then he found out about the Mac lab experiments and decided instead to leverage the success of that first performance into getting into the Mac lab. It's great. You have these three people who, who become aware of the Mac lab. Randy is obviously this celebrity who is also generating the skeptics movement. He is leading it. And it's, they want, they all want to do a heist. It's like a bank heist. They all want to pull a, a, a mission to totally debunk this well-funded psychic laboratory that has aspirations to be stranger things. And they're like, they just, they just send letters say, Hey, I am person. I am actually a teenager who is a psychic. I I would love to become a, 
a person you study to learn how this works? And they say yes. <laughs> they fly them up on the weekends. And, and that's literally what they were asking for. The idea being, and we see echoes of this later on with the satanic panic. Uh, th there seems to be, and this is me speculating here, there seems to be something that in times of crisis, we all seem to want to believe that children are pure and innocent and will not try to snow us. Uh, <laughs> we, you know, if, if, if the crops don't come in, we trust the children to tell us who's the witch that caused the crops to not come in. Uh, if there's uh, somebody who doesn't agree with an authoritarian regime, we trust the children to report them or whatever. So, and in this moment, in this learned helplessness of the 1970s, we have these two kids who answer the call and they're like, yeah, whatever, we're psychic. Great, let's go. So here in this story, you have Peter Phillips who heads up the lab. He's a physicist who is like, yeah, I'll totally head up. He's the Finkman is the is is that Bill Murray's character? Uh, oh, yeah. are you asking me a Ghostbusters trivia? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. Peter Vinkman. Okay, <laughs> Peter Phillips is Peter Vinkman in this story. He's he's the running. He's heading up the parapsychology lab at Washington State University in St. Louis, funded by <laughs> McDonnell Douglas. It's such, it's everything every conspiracy theorist would think is true this is the pieces are in place it's you couldn't make up something more bonkers than what actually happened <laughs> it really is it really is true you have a the military industrial complex is funding a physicist doing psychic research and these kids are being brought in and i love that the second they're in the guy's car they immediately like as soon as he's not looking open up his briefcase and bend all of his spoons and he, he has it in a briefcase he goes they go to his house and he they slip around the corner and start bending his like it's immediate like they're immediately just pulling their scam i know they get in there and they like mike's telling his origin stories he got electrocuted as a kid and now he's a psychic and all this stuff he's got telekinetic powers but once they get in there I, i'm astonished at how Randy is supposed to be their liaison to the lab to give them proper controls. And he gives them all this information and they're supposed to check in with them all the time. They immediately just suck at doing this work. Like they don't keep things locked down. They don't protect their rooms. It feels like I'm watching a, an eighties movie where people very easily slip in and out of things and, and unscrew things. And there's no security because it is, it's that loose and, and silly. Like, what are some of the things they pulled to trick the researchers? One of the bizarre parts that we found out, the more we heard about the story, is that, boy, oh boy, did Randy try to make it very, very easy for Washington University to correct bad behavior, uh, up to and including a series of letters that exactly details the exact experience that they're the, the exact experiments that they're doing and saying, Hey, I don't know what you're up to over there, but if you were trying to get some kids to bend metal, I would definitely suggest the following. And of course, you know, Randy had inside information because the boys would call him over and over again. What makes this such a compelling story is that there is no bad guy. Everybody wants the best for everything. The boys want to prove that scientists can be fooled. Randy wants to prove that a conjurer should be in the laboratory. The Mac lab wants to prove that something bigger than our dumb 
dumb world exists. Uh, it, which makes it all the more agonizing to watch everybody screw each other over in, in curious ways. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the, the boys, they get there, they're like, yay, I get to g- live in a city and do fun stuff in my, in my teens and 20s. Uh, you know, I guess I think they're in their 20s when they hit there. So they're like, they're just going to bars, they're getting drunk, they're hungover doing the experiments. Uh, they're messing with each other and uh, trying to ruin each other. They're calling Randy from the guy's house, from the smallest scientist's house, on collect. <laughs> so it's on his phone bill if he would just look. But that's something that we have to explain to the listeners is like, I don't know if you know this, but it used to be that every single phone call was cataloged and written down on there. So like there are receipts of of the fact that calls are going to James Randy from Peter Phillips's house. And, and they're, they're just, they, they had like little code, like, Hey, if I tap you on the shoulder and say, you want to go get a drink over the soda machine, we'll go over there and they will plan out our next move. They, they, they have like these things where they're, they're, they blow fuses with their minds, but what they really do is they just have pre-blown fuses that they just, uh, a sleight of hand into the machine. They slow, they just, they get presented with something and they just go and make it move with their breath. And when they try to like put a bell jar over it, they just hoist it up with a little bit of uh, aluminum foil balls. They sneak into the room by unlocking the window and coming in later that night. And then they go in and, and mess with all the experiments and then leave. So the next day they're like, ha ha. And they, I, had no, he's, he's, I had a dream that I, I, I messed with your experiments in my sleep. The dream came true. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> It just seems so obvious to me that the experimenters should be like, it just seems so obvious what's happening and they, and they, but they are compelled because they want to get the result. It's, it's, it's astonishing. So I think this might be one of my favorite facts that we uncover over the course of our storytelling. On one hand, you have what appears to be evidence of psychic phenomenon. On the other hand, you have the possibility that this is a massive conspiracy involving magicians, journalists, <laughs> two teenagers, and all these things. And, uh, and, and so he correctly is using Occam's razor to say, seems like it's more obvious that just psychic powers are real. Mm-hmm. And my favorite part of all of it is that James said in the beginning, our hard rule is if they ever actually ask you, are you scamming me? If they ever ask you, are you a magician? If they ever ask you directly, are you up to something? You have to say yes. And then the whole thing comes apart and they never do. They, 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 they kind of do toward the end. They get like, very close. They're like, but, but it takes a long time for them to get there. And then when they do get there, they're like, there, there are rumors about that. Perhaps something is afoot. And they're like, that isn't necessarily a question. So I'm going to say, uh, Oh, that's neat. Lots of rumors going around. <laughs> what I didn't expect is to find out that this is also the story of two undercover cops who get too deep into it. At some point, they realize these are human beings that they're working with. These aren't the faceless enemy, whoever they are. And they want out at some point, but they're too deep in. And the only way out is through. And so uh, James Randi presents them an option where it's like, hey, we're going to reveal everything in this big special. And then on the other side of the special, you can be a famous actor or what have you. To hear their versions of that part of the story was uh, difficult. It was very difficult. Throughout this thing, as it started to become more and more apparent that something was afoot, 
the bad vibes excuse would come back into play. And like, like maybe they're performing poorly because we're starting to become more skeptical of them. I was just like, oh man, like you can get out of this so easily if you just use the bad vibes card. And they did for a little bit. To Peter Phillips's credit, he so believed that there was something here and he so believed in the idea that bad vibes were ruining the experiments that he recused himself from the whole thing and instead handed it over to an undergrad. Say what you will about uh, the motivations of the entire project, but you can't fault the Mac lab for not playing sincerely. Which brings me to one of the most, uh, I assure you people, for the people listening, uh, you want to listen to this because in micro detail, you hear these two men discuss all of this. There's, I've left out everything there so much stuff but I, there's one thing that i will give away and if if brian says to edit it out i will do that but a person becomes so angry that they ejaculate and this happens because james randy decides okay we're going to give it all away it's time to to have a press conference we got the bbc discover magazine it's going to be a real thing we're all going to come together and say okay this has all been a hoax it was for the sake of advancing skepticism, science, and critical reasoning and, and, and establishing better norms for scientific analysis of these things. Yet, somewhere in this process, an unintended consequence emerges, which is a demonic ejaculation. Uh, Brian, how did that take place? So, at some point, the BBC goes to a conference where the boys are there, and they uh, they want to do everything by the book. So they follow all of the rules that James Randi has laid out for them. And you would think that, you know, with this sincere effort, they would get results. But instead, unsurprisingly, they get absolutely nothing. And at some point, the moment the cameras shut off, suddenly everything is bent. I'll leave it to the listeners to figure out why. <laughs> but uh, suddenly everything is bent and this person has a complete psychological meltdown. And this is the moment that the boys realize they're causing actual harm to an actual human being. And it's it's very unpleasant for them. He says he has a demonic ejaculation. And it is both objectively the funniest thing in the world, but also the worst thing yeah. in the world. It's so tragic. And it's very dark comedy here because a, a yeah. man, a man did ejaculate anger in a public place. So. Yes. <laughs> I should, I, I do feel like I'm being a child to laugh at it, but also come on. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that'll be one heck of a scene when we get around to making a movie. <laughs> There are two conferences. One is the early release that the boys were not at that uh, explains the work that the Mac Lab was doing, and that was roundly criticized. Uh, the second one was just a, a circus. Uh, the one in Madison where Yuri Geller was there performing and James Randi shows up undercover wearing a giant crazy afro and uh, dyed his beard. And uh, it's it's... It's truly, I mean, my goodness, if, if I tried to make up a more outrageous story, I don't think I could. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it all comes crashing down in a way that like mirrors the Yuri Geller thing. And that after all of this work, and this is just something I want to hear your thoughts on, and we will wrap up after that, is <clears throat> it feels like um, for 
and I, I you know I've when I for my for my previous for how minds change I visited I went to a a, a uh, the Conscious Life Expo which was a it was conspiracy theorists and um, uh, anti vaxxers psychics people with healing powers uh, every manifestation of alternative belief structures was it was a conference for that and it's very much alive and well this was at the Hilton in Los Angeles and there were the it was like, like Comic-Con. It was a whole lot of people there. I watched a guy get a didgeridoo blown over his uh, lower portion of his body to heal him. I saw there was a thing there. It was a, it was a machine that you had, you'd buy crystals for. You'd put it into the crystal into a, into a slot and he would sleep next to it. And each crystal had a different function. One would make you wealthy. One would get rid of your asthma. It's a, there's a gigantic world that still exists for all this. And I'm sure people are aware that and you have family members, or maybe it's there. We still have this thing. Uh, John Edwards became a celebrity way after all of this. So the Project Alpha did not snuff out this part of our fascination, everything, although it did enough damage to make it laughable to a lot of people, and we got ghost posters out of it. But I'm wondering what you think about that aspect of it, that it didn't collapse our fascination with paranormal and psychic stuff. So after we finished the bulk of season three, uh, Project Alpha, I finally got around to reading uh, the incredible book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. And I was shocked to put together the timeline and realize that The Men Who Stare at Goats, its earliest scene takes place, I believe, four to six months after on public, on, on nationwide television, they revealed Project Alpha. That's when the government began to buy in to the idea of psychic soldiers. Uh, I, I, I suspect that mm, if, if I'm being charitable, I would say that maybe in a war, it, during a Cold War, it makes sense to invest money in propaganda that, that claims that, that you have you know, new technologies that will deceive the other side uh but i don't think that's the case i think that essentially getting dunked on changes no minds uh i suspect you know a little bit about this subject. <laughs> yes, I've, I've, I've spent some time in this world yes uh people believe things for reasons is the way i often tell people uh there we are motivated to believe things for all sorts of reasons accuracy it turns out is not the only thing that was at, at work there it's important to believe for all sorts of reasons honestly then i know we've had this conversation a million times but like honestly the beliefs often are irrelevant that, that is really not the 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 thing that holds it all together that's why it's really frustrating for a person for whom they're seeing it from the outside they don't have any of the motivations the people inside have you you don't have these emotional drives that are causing you to want to believe this or these identity things or these belonging goals none of these things are taking place if you don't believe in it, nothing happens to you socially. So for you, it's like, well, the facts are very clear. And this logic is very clear. I will hand over these facts and logic to you. And then you will go, oh, well, I was wrong about that. But the facts and logic never had anything to do with why you are holding on those beliefs. They're serving a different function for you. And uh, it can become a very frustrating moment for a lot of people. And especially here where you're like, wow, this is very cleanly debunked. I mean, like, not, I'll take that back. This is a very messily debunked. <laughs> you, but this seems like there's no coming back from, yeah, bending spoons and stuff ain't real, y'all. But if that's something you, that you're believing, it was never about the 
the the hardcore trying to explain it at the molecular level in the first place. Well, and 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 there's uh, I I believe in the surprise episode seven we talk about um, that part of the reason the funding even began for the the project was based on as James Randi put it, uh, he wanted to believe in life after death. What bending spoons has to do with that? I don't know. <laughs> and I, I think that's a fair criticism of of that that linkage. I, don't know, I can I can empathize with it though. It's a suggestion. There's something greater. You mentioned this earlier. There's something greater than what's apparent. That 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 that's the. It's really appealing to think science can't doesn't know everything. It's really appealing to say uh, you can't be an expert on this topic because the real expertise is beyond us. So it, and the idea that somebody just off, the, you know, some person could go on the Tonight Show and go oh, and bend a spoon is is feels like oh wow, there is something more and. It's a very minor miracle, but a miracle is a miracle, you know? One thing that absolutely shocked me after we released it was finding out that there's a subcategory of people out there who, when we wrote this, when we did the interviews, when we hopped on planes and went out and met everybody and recorded everything, it was obvious to both me and Justin that this is the story of two kids who did a very brave thing. One thing we did not expect but encountered is the people who listen to it, there's some people who feel like they're the bad guys because they committed a fraud and corrupted a scientific investigation into claims of the supernatural. And uh, I, 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 hopefully, by the time everybody finishes the journey, they end up understanding the motivations, but that was, that's a case where I just have to own the fact that Justin and I were a little bit wearing blinders and it was so obvious to us that what these kids did was a heroic journey. And then other people were like, no, what you did was you committed a crime and committed fraud in an academic situation. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Brian Brushwood's website is shwood.com and he tweets or whatever we call that now at shwood. The show is the world's greatest con. The season we've been talking about is Project Alpha. It's season three. You can find it at all the usual podcast places. For links to everything that we talked about, including source material for some of the early things in the episode and just links to things that are related, you can find all that at youarenotsosmart.com or check the show notes inside your podcast player. My new book, How Minds Change, I say it's new. It's been out for one year. You can find it in a link to this episode's show notes right there in your podcast player as well, or go to the homepage for How Minds Change. It's over at davidmcraney.com. You can find a roundtable video with a group of persuasion experts featured in the book. You can read a sample chapter, download a discussion guide, sign up for a newsletter, read reviews, all sorts of stuff. For all the past episodes of this show, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. 
Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also, follow me at all social media places at David McCraney. Also, we're on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for things, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad free. But the higher amounts will be posters, t-shirts, sign books, and other things. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And if you really want to support the show, just tell everybody you know about it. And check back in in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Mm-hmm.